Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called the Recovering the Good Shepherd. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 22, 2018. If you grew up in the church, you learned that Jesus is the Good Shepherd before you could talk or walk. Maybe there was a painting in your church nursery of a gentle-faced Jesus wearing flowy robes, an adorable lamb perched on his shoulders. Maybe you made flocks of sheep out of toothpicks, cotton balls, and Elmer's glue in Sunday school, or had a teacher who moved a felt and sharpie shepherd across pine green flannel graph while you waited for the wolf to show up and make the story interesting. If you're a preacher's kid like me, maybe your clergy parent made you sing, I just want to be a sheep, ba ba," until you were old enough to flinch in embarrassment and beg for mercy. In other words, I don't think I'm the only one who finds the Good Shepherd passages in John's Gospel difficult. The metaphor is over-familiar, its beauty buried under so much saccharine piety and hallmark card sentiment it's hard not to roll our eyes. Most of us in the 21st century have no real-life idea what Jesus was talking about when he described the life of faith in terms of shepherds, sheep, hirelings, and wolves. The images we hold in our heads aren't substantive and gritty. They're ephemeral and soft like watercolor pastels. The thing is, Jesus was an effective teacher because he used metaphors his audience could relate to. When he spoke of shepherds, vineyards, mustard seeds, and fishing nets, he was not spouting exotica. He was wielding the stuff of first-century peasant life. So the problem isn't Jesus, it's me. I've never herded sheep, met a shepherd, or fought a wild predator in my life. But I did grow up visiting my grandparents' farms in India, and I can tell you this. I never saw my grandfather drape a baby animal over his clean, robed shoulders. Most of the time, the animals on his farm stank. Often at the end of a long day in their midst, so did he. How the church went from the mud-stained hardships of animal husbandry to a manicured Jesus cuddling a lily-white lamb is beyond me. So I come to this week's readings jaded on the one hand and ignorant on the other. What did Jesus mean when he called himself the Good Shepherd? In what ways am I like a sheep? What flock do I belong to and whose voice do I follow most readily? I don't have black and white answers, but I have are questions, an ongoing desire to re-engage and recover this metaphor in my own life. As I read and reread John's Gospel, here are some of those questions. Why did Jesus use a shepherd metaphor in the time and place he did? According to the Gospel reading, Jesus had just healed a blind man on the Sabbath, and the religious elite were furious. Moreover, it was the Feast of the Dedication, the holiday we know today as Hanukkah, when Jewish people celebrate the rededication of the Temple, after the victory of Judas Maccabeus in 2nd century BCE. And Jesus was walking in the Temple itself the very place that Jews venerated as representative of their unique covenantal relationship with God. Why call himself a shepherd in that setting? The image of a shepherd tending his flock would have been deeply ingrained in the religious imaginations of the Israelites. They knew Moses tended his father-in-law's flock before God commissioned him to lead the Israelites out of slavery. They knew King David tended sheep before ascending to the throne. They knew Yahweh as the ultimate shepherd over his flock, Israel. So I wonder if Jesus was saying something provocative rather than self-effacing when he called himself the Good Shepherd. I tend to think meek and mild when I imagine Jesus cradling lambs. But why would meek and mild incense his listeners, who attempted to arrest him for using this particular metaphor? Was Jesus in fact equating himself with God, the Shepherd King? On the very occasion when the Jews were celebrating the supremacy of the Temple and its centrality in their religious lives, was Jesus suggesting that God's presence actually dwells in the wilderness? out among the wolves, the thieves, the hirelings, and the smelly sheep. In other words, among the outcasts, the irreligious, the ritually unclean, and the politically incorrect. If so, what might this provocative teaching mean for us today? Where is my temple? Where is my wilderness?
where are the places I assume God doesn't dwell? What did Jesus mean when he said, I know my own and they know me? Is a life of faith really so straightforward and certain? I'm remembering times in my life when I have not known for sure who God is or what he desires of me, when I have feared that I am not Jesus' own. If Jesus is so certain of my identity, so sure that I'm capable of discerning his voice, I wonder what keeps me hanging in doubt and fear. I think of the barriers that lie between Jesus' assurance and my faith. There are barriers of doctrine. Do I believe all the right things about God? Do I have my creeds in order? Is there some nuance of theology I'm missing? There are barriers of guilt. How can I really be forgiven when I mess up so often? If I belong to the shepherd, why is it so easy to wander away? Surely there must be a catch somewhere. And there are barriers of pain. I've cried out for my shepherd's voice many times and experienced silence. Or if Jesus has spoken, I have not recognized him. If the metaphor isn't perfect, or if it leaves much to mystery, can I still find the courage to lean into it? Maybe the barriers I've named are of my own making. Maybe what Jesus is saying in this passage is more straightforward and more radical. You belong. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I know you. You are mine. Period. Who are my modern-day hirelings? In the story Jesus tells, the hired hands are pseudo-shepherds who work for personal gain, not love. They have no stake in the well-being of the sheep. They flee at the first sign of danger. So I wonder, whose voices do I heed to my detriment? What siren songs call to me, making seductive promises I shouldn't trust? Money, success, physical attractiveness, prestige, politics, racial, cultural, or national identity. These are the biggies, easiest to name. What else calls to me, promising a version of love that is ultimately thin, cheap, and unsafe? What is shepherding really like for Jesus? I've heard that sheep are dumb and skittish. I've heard they wander, get hurt easily, graze without ceasing, and bicker for no decent reason. I've heard they're stubborn, that they long to be led but resist being driven. So I wonder what Jesus has to put up with shepherding me. Does he watch the dumb, skittish, stubborn things I do, hoping I won't injure myself yet again? Does he fight loneliness and boredom as I ignore him in favor of cleaner pastures? Maybe he rescues me from death all the time, while I, oblivious, resist his efforts tooth and nail. Why has the church blunted this metaphor? The more I read John 10, the more gritty and challenging it sounds. I'm astonished at how much I have not seen in this passage. As a good shepherd, Jesus lives at the edges of polite society, out in the wild, untamed places of the world. His life remains perpetually in danger. He faces again and again the mockery and abandonment of the hirelings, who consider his self-sacrificial vocation absurd. Because he's in it for the long haul, he not only frolics with lambs, but wrestles with wolves. He not only tends the wounds of his beloved rams and ewes, he buries them when their time comes. No wonder the church has turned Jesus the shepherd into a greeting card. It's hard to face the bold leader he really is. It hurts to trade the hallmark card for the long nights and danger-filled days of a vocation in the muck. So how shall we incarnate the love of this magnificent shepherd? How will we spread his goodness in the wildest of wild places, in the valleys, among the wolves, within the flock he knows and loves? What will it take to recover his fortitude, his courage, his boundless love? On this fourth Sunday after Easter, we know that Jesus is a shepherd who keeps his promises. He has already laid down his life for his sheep. Now it's our turn. Our shepherd is calling, and his call is trustworthy. But we're free, now and always, to resist. We follow what we belong to. Is it him? For books this week, we review Tears of Salt by Pietro Bartolo and Lydia Tilota. This memoir of moral courage and indignation is set among the refugee crisis on Lampedusa, a tiny and isolated Italian island just eight miles square and that sits only 70 miles from the north coast of Africa. 
In the last 20 years, 400,000 migrants have landed on Lampedusa, fleeing war, poverty, and ethnic strife. About 15,000 people have, tried, have died trying. The physician Pietro Bartolo was born on Lampedusa in 1966 to a family of seven children. Like most men there, his father was a fisherman, and like most people in Lampedusa, they were poor. He never wore shoes as a little boy, and was packed off to school at the age of 13 because the island had no high school. But after studying medicine, he returned and spent five years as the deputy mayor and counselor of health. For 25 years now, since 1992, he is head of the only medical clinic on the island. As such, he's the first medical person the migrants meet, and the point person of perhaps the signal global crisis of our time. Sometimes he is their savior, and often he is their coroner. On Lampedusa, he says, I have seen it all. And no, despite all his experiences of horror, despondency, helplessness, and futility, you never get used to it. Bartolo speaks up for those who have no voice, like 15-year-old Jerusalem from Etria, Omar from Tunisia, a Sudanese girl named Sama who arrived with a pet cat, the brothers Hassan and Mohammed from Somalia, a teenager from Ghana, Joy from Nigeria, Amina from Libya, and Jasmine who arrived in a boat with 800 migrants. My USB drive fills up every day with their names. I catalog their names and preserve their stories with the meticulousness of an archivist. Bartolo devotes a chapter to how he was featured in Gianfranco's Rosie's strange movie Fire at Sea, which won the top prize at the 2016 Berlin Film Festival, and was a finalist for an Academy Award for Best Documentary. In the film, he's the voice of conscience and compassion. The lucky refugees he'll make it ashore with their foil blankets, dehydrated and malnourished, many with burns from diesel-soaked clothes, face a new set of problems. They are searched, registered, photographed, processed, and it would appear forgotten out of sight and mind to the islanders of the world. They wait and hope. Whereas questions about policy are admittedly complex, when it comes to the people he treats, Bartolo has a message for us all. It is a duty of every human being to help these people. For films this week, Dan reviews Patterson. The independent filmmaker Jim Jarmusch continues his trademark slow-moving minimalism in the story about the simple and the sacred. The movie is set in Patterson, New Jersey, its main protagonist is a bus driver named Patterson, who drives the number 23 Patterson bus. On the one hand, this film is about the sacred ordinary. The story follows one week in the life of Patterson, the bus driver. Each new day is a near carbon, carbon copy of the day before, right down to much of the dialogue and actions. He gets up, eats a bowl of Cheerios, walks to work in his blue bus uniform with his green lunch pail, then walks back home, straightens a wobbly mailbox in his weed-infested yard, eats dinner, and walks his dog Marvin to the local bar. His wife Laura sells homemade cupcakes at the farmer's market and splurge on a $200 guitar. They are unfailingly tender, polite, and kind to each other. I don't think there's one moment of special effects, sex, violence, drugs, or vulgarity in this film. On the other hand, you could say this film is also about the ordinary sacred, for at night Patterson writes poetry. Throughout the film, a voiceover features his poems. We also learned that William Carlos Williams was a Patterson native who similarly had a regular job as a physician. Patterson never speaks to his rioters, but he eavesdrops on their conversations as a careful listener and keen observer of their humanity that he encounters every day. Perhaps that's because he doesn't even own a cell phone. Dan watched this film on Amazon Streaming. And finally, for poems on this fourth Sunday of Easter, The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief, 
I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April twenty second, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.